Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, writer-director Heather Taylor. And by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here. So on today's episode, we'll be talking about burnout. I think something that we've experienced. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) I remember being in bed for a week between jobs. Yes. So we've definitely experienced that. So we're going to talk about what it is, what we can do about it, and how we can recover from it when it happens to us. We're going to talk to Hamza Khan, a best-selling author and global keynote speaker whose TEDx talk, Stop Managing, Start Leading, has been viewed nearly 2 million times. He's a top-ranked university educator and respected thought leader whose insights have been featured by notable media outlets such as Vice, Business Insider, and The Globe and Mail. As the co-founder of Skills Camp, a leading soft skills training company, Hamza is on a mission to empower organizations to thrive in the future of work. Quick reminder to our listeners that this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only because everyone's brain is different. Please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. And now, Hamza. Brains! That's exactly how we say it! Yes, you, you got our vibe! <laughs> I got it. Heather asked on Twitter... What do you want to learn? And I started preparing for this podcast with the intensity of like studying for an exam. I have pages of answers (laughs) written out. So anyway, sorry, I'm so excited. (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to learn lots today. (laughs) I know. And I'm I'm so excited for this opportunity. Thank you. It means a lot uh, that this connection happened. And uh, it came through Kim, Kim Morrison, who recommended the book. I'm really, I'm really grateful that Kim recommended the book and that you got so much from it, Heather, that you invited me on this podcast. And thank you for creating the space, the the platform to do this and for asking those questions to your followers. That was so cool to see how many, I mean, not, not cool to see them burning out, yeah. but cool to see them interested in learning about burning. Yeah. I mean, uh, it truly lit a fire in me. I feel like now more than ever, this is something that people are being impacted by. That I mean, it's like not that it wasn't happening before. It's just like when you're, you know, home and you're isolated and you realize like, oh, oh, this is really happening to me. Like I am really burning out. Plus, like I always I don't know if you how you think about it, but I always think like we have levels of stress in the world and like our stress level is (laughs) 70 percent always. And then you have everything else on top of it. So, Heather, on that note, there's a a diagnostic known as the Holmes and Ross Stress Index. So for those listening, it's H-O-L-M-E-S space R-A-H-E, and it lists about 50 different transitions that a person might go through in their life, and it assigns them a numeric value. So if you had to guess, Heather and Sarah, what is the most stressful life transition that we can experience as human beings? Wild guess. Well, I'm going to cheat because I read your book, but isn't isn't divorce high up there? Right on top of that, it's death death of a loved one, so death death of a spouse. Yeah, And that uh, gives a score of 100 out of 300, and I'll, I'll explain the 300 in a second. And if you had to guess, what is the the life transition or the life event that generates the lowest score on the Holmes and Ross stress index. Wild guess. Huh. Ooh, lowest. Lowest. Uh, it generates a score of 11 out of 300. I was going to say like choosing your dinner. Cause I mean, I find that very stressful, <laughs> but I don't know. 
<laughs> hey, that can be quite stressful at times. Shout out to Chef's Plate and good food. You know, they've uh, eliminated that decision fatigue that comes from deciding what you're going to have for dinner. But uh, no, it's actually minor violations of the law. So like a parking ticket or whatnot. And actually right on top of that, something that gives you 12 out of 300 is uh, Christmas. Oh, so I think for some people it's higher than that. <laughs> yeah, it certainly was for me this past yeah. Christmas. I must say planning an event and then attending one and then not to mention navigating all of the ever-changing COVID restrictions. It was definitely more than 12. But uh, if in a calendar year you rack up a score of more than 300, then you are at severe risk of uh, illness, injury, or worse, death. And I think that if nothing else has changed in our lives other than the circumstances caused by the pandemic, so changes in work style, changes in number of gathering, uh, you know, changes in finances and whatnot, the three of us on this podcast right now are all sitting somewhere at a 150 mm. out of 300. If nothing else has changed, and then you layer in all the things that are individual to us, you know, to your point, to your point, Heather, it's uh, we're all stressed, and I would take that a step further. I think we're all in the latter stages of burning out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. We kind of dived right into some real juicy stuff, but I want to pause for a second and get, um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and why you started exploring the impacts of burnout? So the year was 2014, you know, early 2010s. I was very much subscribed to the, um, the, the hustle culture, if you will, the toxic hustle culture popularized by the likes of, you know, uh, <laughs> of, at the time, a very toxic Gary V. I think about this one video he did, a TED talk that he did. Where, uh, I look back at it now and I'm like, holy, I can't believe I thought that this was cool. I can't believe I thought that this was worthwhile. He was saying, the answer, if you want the bling and if you want to buy the jets is to work, work nine to six, then go home, kiss your dog and work again. <laughs> he was saying ridiculous shit like that. And uh, he's like, <laughs> the famous line from it was like, stop. Everybody has time. Stop watching fucking Lost. And I was like, yeah, Gary, I'm going to stop watching Lost and I'm going to work <laughs> nine to six and then work six to the next day. And I did that for the entirety of 2014. And at the top of the year, I promised myself this celebratory trip around the world. I was going to, in December, go around the world. I booked the tickets, the, the hotels, Airbnbs, intercity travel, all of that. But for the 11 months that led up to December, I worked in the style of, of work known as the 997 style of work uh, working. And this was popularized by Jack Ma of Alibaba. Uh, that's essentially working 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. seven days a week. And Heather, you actually know something about that when you were in advertising in New York. I think you were putting in 16-hour workdays. Some days. And then you said that your life became a string of missed, canceled meetings. I think that was the phrase that you used. Yeah. That's what my 2014 was like. It was just work, 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 and then work some more. And... Um, the day I was supposed to leave on that trip around the world, suffered a panic attack. And this was like hours before I was supposed to call an Uber and go to the airport and take this trip that was supposedly supposed to replenish all of the lost energy that I had experienced during that year. And so I burned out and I was so confused and so angry about what had happened because not only did I burn out, I became instantly sicker than I'd ever been before. For the next 30 days, I was bedridden, bewildered, talking to doctors, and they were all saying the same things. They said, Hamza, you're burnt out. You're, you've experienced chronic unmanaged stress over the course of the year. You can no longer work at the levels of intensity that you were working at, or else next time it could be fatal. You're actually lucky. And it was during that time where I discovered a story of um, somebody around my age by the name of Moritz Earhart, who was an intern at the Bank of America Merrill Lynch in the UK. And his story ended prematurely because his burnout led to an epileptic seizure that resulted in his untimely death. And I saw so much of myself in his story. And, uh, you know, 
I was lucky in 2014 to emerge with my health and wellness intact, my life, and he wasn't. And so that made me look deeper into burnout. And um, what I've found since then is that the, the research is, is so limited. And for whatever reason, we're not talking about it with the volume and intensity that we should be talking about it. And so I was, uh, you know, in the first half of my career, if you will, marketing communications professional, but I've since transitioned into becoming a future of work researcher, speaker, author, and I've transitioned my focus of burnout and, you know, all, all the sort of journaling that was happening at the time that I was doing in the casual research into formalized research through my graduate studies um, and my work as a future of work uh, expert, if you will. How could you tell you were burning out? And like, could you walk us through those stages of burnout that you were experiencing that you didn't clock? The 12 stages of burnout model was very eye-opening for me. Uh, when I had burned out, I was pouring through the literature and uh, I found that, first of all, the term burnout, which up until that point, I thought was a video game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of video games, Heather, you actually voiced a character in a game that I played when I was younger I on Driver San Francisco. I did. Um, I didn't even Xbox know that. Yeah, I did. What? I, I, went through, I went through both of your IMDb pages. I've, do, I've done as much homework as I can on, on both of y'all. You know more about my sister who I've known my whole <laughs> life than I do. That's wild. <laughs> Back to Burnout, another video game that I was playing on Xbox 360. So the year is 2014. I don't have any concept of burnout. It's a throwaway term. You know, I'm using it casually. Oh, folks, I'm burning out. Oh, I feel burnt out. But I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know what that entailed until I actually burned out. And burnout, you know, as is typically the case with burnout, by the time you realize you're burning out, it's far too late. And so I was wiped by the end of the year 2014 and, you know, at home, alone, nothing really to do other than recover. I was just trying to understand what had happened to me. And so I read as many books as I could. And one of the only books written at the time about burnout was the, uh, the book by Her Dr. Herbert Freudenberger and Dr. Gail North. And they had coined the term in the 70s at a time, which by the way, isn't that long ago. And uh, interesting fact, when they published their initial, initial research about burnout, they were actually laughed at by their colleagues and, and their work was rejected on the basis of appearing to be pseudoscience. But here we are now living in a time, at least since 2019, when the World Health Organization has finally included burnout in its international classification of diseases, which is very vindicating, but also frustrating because it tends to individualize and medicalize treatment to burnout. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we're going to go into solutions in a second. Burnout typically happens in sequence, at least occupationally speaking. It begins with the compulsion to prove oneself, which we all feel. Otherwise, we wouldn't have started this. The two of you wouldn't have started this podcast. I wouldn't be on this podcast unless we had the need to demonstrate that we can do something. It's part of the striving process. And I think it's very normal and even healthy to a certain extent. We feel the compulsion to prove ourselves, which increases the level of challenge or difficulty that can elicit the necessary performance. But then that leads to working harder and then neglecting your needs, the first three stages. And from neglecting your needs onwards, it gets really slippery. And I started neglecting my needs, displacing conflicts, revising my values, so on and so forth. Skip all the way to the latter three stages. Uh, you have... Uh, uh, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting this. And I, I speak about this all the time. The last two, depression and then full-blown burnout syndrome. That's total mental, physical, and even emotional collapse for that matter. And the signs that I was avoiding throughout that entire time, I would say there were three in particular. And for the listeners, it, it's helpful to think of, you know, uh, just imagine your well-being like a, like a car dashboard, if you will. And it has three gauges, the physical gauge, the mental gauge, and the emotional gauge. And with each of those, there's symptoms within those categories. So in the physical, for instance, you have fatigue and tiredness, 
uh, aches and inability to sleep, uh, lowered immunity, things like that. With mental, you have anxiety and inability to focus, exhaustion and emptiness. In the emotional, you have doubt in your ability to do your job, loneliness, wanting to give up, those sort of things. And um, I was looking at these symptoms in isolation and not considering them as part of a grouping of symptoms that would constitute a syndrome, burnout syndrome. That's what it is essentially. And burnout syndrome was very accurately named because at the time there were no, there was no terminology to, to describe the suffering that people were experiencing in the seventies, at least in the clinical setting where Dr. Herbert Ford and Berger worked. And so the burnout, burnout as a metaphor has two components. It's humans as energy systems that, you know, either lose energy or gain energy. And then the syn syndrome part is the grouping of the symptoms. And so again, I was just ignoring very clear indicators that I was burning out throughout the, 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 the descent that I was, uh, experiencing in 2014. When I read the list of, of symptoms, I guess it was just almost in culture normal. It's like, Oh, it's normal to feel this way. Mm -hmm. You're like, for me back then I was young in my career. You got to work hard. You got to hustle to get it done. Right. How, you got to prove yourself so that you get the next job. And so it was, we were like almost taught to just ignore that mm -hmm. yeah. because that was just part of the culture to get, especially in film and television. Absolutely. You mentioned in your book about millennials are being affected by burnout a lot more than past generations. Have you noticed that it's been, has there been a shift for the newer generations now that there's been more dialogue about burnout and burnout syndrome? That's an, that's an excellent question. And, uh, you know, what, what you described as, as prevalent in the film and television industry, certainly alive and well in the marketing communications. And, you know, Heather, I'm sure you can confirm in the advertising industry as well. Yes. Before I started to write the book, The Burnout Gamble, I had to answer that question that you just asked, Sarah, which is, you know, is, is this getting worse over time? You know, am I perceiving this differently because I'm a millennial or has have levels of stress always been this high for previous generations, especially when you factor in things like world wars and the threat of nuclear Armageddon yeah. and, uh, you know, the plague and whatnot, if you want to take it all the way back then. And very early in my, in my research, I found that yes, younger and younger generations are being disproportionately affected by burnout. And, um, there's a couple of reasons why. So, so the first is Younger generations experience, on average, more frequent stressors, and I think technology has a lot to do with that. We're also becoming more sophisticated in our understanding of trauma, mental health, oppression, inequality, and uh, as a result, we're becoming more perceptive of the impact that stress has on our lives. We have the concepts, we have the language to understand what's happening to us. But the big one, the one that I wasn't looking for that kept on presenting itself in the research was loneliness. Mm. And I wish, you know, I, I published the Burnout Gamble in 2017, and I think about it with mixed feelings. You know, I'm very glad that I published it when I did. I think it was very impactful at the time, but I would love to rewrite it from scratch um, because it only addresses one side of the burnout solution. Uh, actually, the, the small part of the burnout solution is what the individual can do. And I had just alluded to, I had the right ideas, but they weren't fully fleshed out with the castle factors. And, um, you know, these are the, the, the exogenous factors, the factors from without that influence, stress and burnout, competition, alienation, society, technology, and the economy. But the L was loneliness. And at the time, the numbers were still startling. You know, there was one that found that one out of every five Americans doesn't have a close friend. Sorry, one out of three Americans doesn't have a close friend. Here in Canada, one out of five young Canadians uh, don't have any friends at all, according to a recent survey that I found by the CDC, actually. 
Loneliness, huge problem. Loneliness can be, studies show, as dangerous as smoking. Smoking 15 cigarettes a day can be as dangerous as obesity, shaves years off your life. And I think that for millennials and especially Gen Z, social media, the fragmentation of the social experience, and COVID-19 have worsened these feelings of loneliness and isolation. You know, people, granted, they may be connected online, but they're not necessarily connecting, if that makes sense. No, oh, I'm just like, oh, just, there's a lot there. I'm going to be sad for a little bit. Oh my gosh. How do you reverse this path towards burnout? Like how, and how long can it last for people? Like I felt like a, my friend on Twitter was like, I think I've been in burnout for two years and it just makes me like, how do we take ourselves back from that place and go to a place that's more healthy? Let me start with the easy sort of actionable answer and then go into my latest exploration. So how long can burnout last? It depends because burnout exists on a gradient. At the start of the pandemic, I nearly burned out and I was able to reverse course and get my life back on track within a matter of weeks. But when I burned out in catastrophic fashion in 2014, it took me three to four years to recover from that burnout because I was exploring solutions actively at the time. And the literature was so again, focused on individual and medical treatments. And I really wasn't addressing the systemic, the systems level reasons why I was burning out. So it really depends. But I think that a podcast like this is a necessary catalyst for quicker recovery in that hopefully by the end of this, if you're listening to this, you're going to have vocabulary, you're going to have concepts, you're going to have resources, solutions, all of the things that Heather and Sarah are hoping you're hoping to get out of me. And I'm, I'm hoping to give you as much as I can and download everything we'll from my brain yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and give it to the listeners. So, so that's going to be really important. The education is so important. And um, hopefully with every uh, reflection that you have on, on experiencing adversity and God forbid burnout, I hope that you will find, as has been the case with people that I've been coaching and organizations I've been working with, and even the, the literature shows this, that um, that active reflection, that developing of self-awareness is necessary to, to faster recovery, not only that, but also inoculation, to use a oft-used term during the pandemic. <laughs> yes. now, now, the first question, though, that you asked was, how do you reverse the path to burnout? And this is the focus of my latest research and the stuff that gets me really fired up. And I remember seeing on Twitter, you know, Heather, you asked the question, we have a specialist coming on, what would you like to learn? And boom, I think you got like 30 plus comments, 30 questions I did. over there. <laughs> And so many of the questions were framed or they, they presupposed that there was nothing that the individuals could do to change their workplace. And that's the thing that really frustrates me. The burnout gamble, as I mentioned, was about the individual. What can each of us do to optimize our wellness and productivity as a sort of buttress against external stressors? presenting as performance pressure. So because we can't deal as one person with competition, alienation, society, technology, loneliness, and the economy, we internalize it as performance pressure. Any given day, the three of us, we don't feel like we're perfect enough, efficient enough, progressive enough, or satisfied enough. We don't feel enough. But this new project, and it doesn't have a name, I've been flirting with the idea like beyond burnout or the burnout paradox is about the leadership and organizational imperative. It's a project that goes into the heart of darkness, quite literally at times, especially when we're exploring this model known as the dark triad of leadership model, which we could talk about. It's essentially psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. And I'm trying to make the case that a lasting solution to burnout requires a sort of pincer attack. It requires individuals to be optimized for productivity and wellness, but it especially requires leaders to create cultures that are conducive to well-being at all levels. 
And Christina Maslach, who's the third sort of pioneer of burnout research, in addition to Herbert Freudenberger and Dr. Gail North, she has this fascinating quote about burnout. She says, um, and I, I'm going to paraphrase over here because uh, I, I don't remember the exact sequence in which these elements were presented, but she said, uh, if you take a flower, if you take a plant, no matter how beautiful it was to begin with, if you place it in lousy soil, you don't give it enough sunshine or water, I don't care how beautiful it was to begin with, it simply isn't going to thrive. Yeah. And I think about this, especially in the context of the high-octane workplace cultures that I was in. Heather, you were in a Mad Men Ask ad agency where I'm sure you've heard the refrain, you know, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. But what if the goddamn kitchen is on fire? And that's what we're dealing with over here. And Christina Maslach has six upstream correlates of burnout. When we experience burnout as, as employees, that's downstream. It's already too late. It's the result of upstream factors. And there's six in particular. There's unsustainable workload. And the research has shown time and again that the best predictor of whether or not you're going to burn out is how manageable your workload is. If you are working more than 50 hours a week consistently and not managing the stress that comes with that, your risk of burnout increases significantly. And beyond 60 hours of work a week in that style, it becomes a question of when you're going to burn out, not a matter of if you're going to burn out. So there's unsustainable workload, number one. Number two is a lack of control. Number three is insufficient reward. Number four is a poor or toxic community. Number five is a lack of fairness. And number six is inconsistent or missing values. And, you know, um, we're in Canada and, and here in Ontario, the collapse of the healthcare system over here, the impending collapse is all six of these factors happening simultaneously. That's the best example that I can point people to. If you want to understand why people, why nurses are burning out, just think about these six upstream factors and you will understand the leadership imperative that uh, I wish I wish we talked about more. So I used to work, you know, in that Mad Men-esque world. And then um, when I basically realized that I this is going to kill me eventually, when I worked to my next job, I just realized if I if I seem like I'm working all the time, that I can protect myself. So I started just right. making sure that I would respond to my <laughs> boss's emails on the weekends. Sure, yeah, but the optics. Yeah, right? the optics and no one yeah. else's. And I felt because I was told by someone like about another colleague of mine, that person, he um, works to live rather than lives to work. And I was like, I can't, this is not the life I want. And I want a different life. I mean, which is, I mean, we'll talk about film and I'll ask some question about film and TV world, which is, just as long hours, to be honest, but it's in the guise of like, but we're making art, but you're also working 17 hours a day. It's the same type of work. Um, and, and I joked with someone, but at least I'm not crying in the bathroom. But I, I mean, know. it's not better. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not better. You know, crying in the bathroom actually is, is, a, is a quite a common thing that I'm finding in my graduate research. So what I'm looking at is I'm looking for evidence of these upstream factors across content analysis of anonymous reviews of companies, specifically the top 100 best companies to work at in Canada, as published by the Globe and Mail, a pro-business publication that runs ads for the very businesses that it lists as the top 100 best places to work. And uh, if you take a deep dive into these companies, and if you look at the reviews that present themselves on Indeed, Glassdoor, and Blind, that comes up way too much. People going to the bathroom to cry. There's one, and I'm not going to name the company. I have found at least 100 reviews where people have gone to the bathroom to cry on a daily basis. And I'm like, wow, what is happening over here? What, why would? Why are people being subjected to this? Why, why does this need to happen? And then in the extreme cases, why are people literally dying for a paycheck? 
And then I have to come back to the answer. Oh yeah, I was one of these people at one point. Sometimes cry myself to sleep. I would sometimes take my laptop with me to the bathroom so that I wasn't missing anything. I would I've done set alarms to wake up at like one in the morning just to make sure that I was synchronized with the people who I was trying to impress. Mm -hmm. I would try to, you know, respond to every instant message and have notifications on at all times of the day. Again, my research right now is going into some really, really dark, unexplored territory, very uncomfortable territory. And at times I feel like I'm losing my mind. You know, I, I think about the, the Greek myth of Cassandra being burdened with this knowledge that nobody is listening to. And I'm so glad, again, that you've given me the opportunity to share this because my hypothesis is that burnout at the level that we're experiencing it is a consequence of the stage of capitalism that we're in right now, late stage capitalism. But I'm, I'm not ready to make that conclusion firmly as of yet. But I will say this, the things that can be measured, the things that are documented are the dark triad of leadership, but specifically the type of environment in which they thrive. And there's something known as the toxic triangle of leadership. And I'm sure you've worked within these organizations or the toxic triangle, not of leadership, just the toxic triangle. And it describes three factors that result in a workplace being quote unquote toxic at, at the first vertex at the top, you have the dark triad leader. So this is a, you know, subclinical levels of psychopathy, narcissism, Machiavellianism. We've all had bosses like this on the other vertex of the triangle, you have conformers and colluders. So these are people that are colluding to, you know, create a more favorable environment for themselves. And then you have conformers. These are people beaten into submission who will just do whatever the emperor wants. And then on the other side, you have the environmental factor. So this is instability. This is a lack of values, uh, absence of government, and then uh, perceived threat. Sometimes they create these fake external stressors to keep you on edge all the time. And if people want to understand what a toxic triangle looks like with a dark triad leader, just think about the United States under uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. Perfect example. Like that's a very vivid example, very easy, easy example to point to of dark triad and toxic triangle working mm -hmm. in concert. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the media has led us to believe that um, the solutions to burnout are individual and medical. When in fact, the very cursory research I've done is pointing to the exact opposite. Your new research and what you're talking about right now is like coming from the places where you work. And I guess there's systems too, but like gig economy for like, for me, I've been freelancing for 12 or so, I don't know, for a while. I'm the one that's in control of what I take, but I still, but there's still a system there. I'm sure there's still a system at play, even though I feel like I'm in quote unquote control of the work I get to do. But so how does it come into play with this new way of working? I think that's way more common that there's way more people that are just freelancing or getting jumping from one gig to the next gig where there isn't even some of those stability things in place. Because when you have a full time job, you have benefits like you get vacation day. There's certain things that are in place that are I'm assuming supposed to help you not burn out. Right. But those things aren't incorporated into my world unless I incorporate them. And I don't always do that because. Well, because I like editing, so I do a lot of editing. Well, <laughs> no, but it's it's feast or famine. You're worried, like hundred yes, percent. Yeah, what's you're what's not gonna like you're you're not gonna get the work. We say feast or famine, but like I've never experienced. I shouldn't say. I don't know. Maybe knock on wood, but I haven't experienced famine yet as a freelancer. Like I've constantly been busy, so but I still have this in the back of my head. 
oh, I better take that job. I don't want to turn that client down because then I won't get to work with them again or whatever. But I haven't actually experienced the without yet, but yet I'm still right. terrified that I'm going to not have a, a contract. There's a lot to unpack over here. So so l- let me try to work work through this because I, I too am a freelancer. I too identify as a creative. I have been freelancing for a number of years right now. And what you described, you know, this this persistent sense that I'm not doing enough is very much alive and well with the type of work that I do right now. So for those of you who are listening right now and, and are thinking, oh yeah, the reason why I'm burning out is my boss. Like you're partially correct. And it's the work environment too. But there is also an individual onus that I want to place on you, which is you have to ultimately optimize your productivity and your self-care. Like that responsibility ultimately rests with you. But especially for freelancers who are so exposed, you know, who are outside of systems where they can choose not to work with certain clients, it might help to reframe what your boss looks like, if you will. Your boss is now your the director that you're working with. It could be the editor you're working with. It could be the agency that subcontracted you. You essentially have many different bosses, but the beauty of this is that you are ultimately the layer on top of that at. So, so putting that aside, it helps to think about something known as the conservation of resources theory. And this is really important to understanding why we experience stress. There's three reasons why we experience stress. When there's a threat of a loss of resources, when there's an actual net loss of resources, and when there's a lack of gained resources following the spending of resources. So let me try to break this down over here. Think about these resources as your time, your energy, and your attention. As freelancers, you're constantly exchanging your time, energy, and attention for money. Now. When there's a threat of a loss of resources, this could be, you know, if if I attend this networking party, I'm not going to have enough time to work on this project. So that's like the threat of a loss of resources. And that generates stress. When there's an actual net loss of resources, let's say you're working on a project that goes out of scope and now you're losing money, you're experiencing stress. And then when there's a lack of gained resources following the spending of resources, this is you invest all of this time, sunk cost fallacy into, let's say a course that you're doing, let's say you're learning uh, a, a new part of the Adobe suite, but it's not producing the return that you're hoping for, that's also stressful. So I think there's a couple of things to do when it comes to the conservation of resources. First of all, establish clear boundaries with your new bosses, with your clients, and be very clear about that. To quote Kenny Rogers in The Gambler, you've also got to (laughs) know when to hold them, when to fold them, and when to walk away. And that is something that freelancers are in a unique position to do as compared to people who might be working in more precarious positions who might, um, you know, Heather, you were in in that position when you were in the States because in order to maintain your visa, you had to persist and put up with a situation that had clearly devolved over there. Yes. Um, Versus now, you are your own boss. You get to decide who you work with, what projects you work on, and you can exit them with more permission space than you would have in in that previous iteration of your life. I will say yes and no, because like it's a little different mm. for me. So as a writer and director, yes, I can create some of my own projects or be brought on for a project. But when you're working in something, so when I'm working in something like a feature film, and it's something that's commissioned or whatever, a lot of times the writer, you write it and you're on your own. Uh, you're just, you're fulfilling um, your deadlines, but you are on your own. When you work in television, you are in a writer's room, you have a boss, there's a hierarchy. Um, when you're uh, within the world of television, let's say a friend of mine is an art director or like you have many layers ahead of above you, you have layers below you and you're trying to manage the expectations and every showrunner 
And every, like, so every boss is different and you don't have control. So like you could work on a show and be like, here's your hours in the day, but we pay you for daytime work. And then you have to write your scripts at night. And then also you're writing stuff to get you your next job. So you're trying to balance um, more like speculative work with the wor actual work. And sometimes those days are going to be very long days that you don't have control over. Like, so what do we as the juniors do? Like, you know, my friend posted, which is, and this is not, we know this from like the, the stuff around IATSE. If you haven't read any of it, you have all your research. You should put a chap, five chapters in your book about it. <laughs> about IATSE. Oh yeah. my goodness. About, or about film, about working in the working film, in film. Yeah. yeah. But there, there's a huge thing around how many hours in a day, because it costs the same amount of money to do a 10 hour a day over, let's say eight weeks for making a film as it is to do 12 hour days over six weeks. And guess what they always pick? The latter. The 12 hour days because that means act no actors can do more shows and producers can make more things more money more money but then people die and like that's but people actually die yeah. people, people die, die. Yeah. yeah but like you know you're working those 17 she said um how do you handle a 17 hour day 85 hour work weeks how can you cope when you have no you have to do that for an x x amount of time like and people are asking what are the band-aids until i can deal with the stress yeah I saw that question. What are the band-aids? It made me like so stress? many people liked it and said, yes, this, this, this. It made me want to cry. Wow. 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 We need to strengthen democracy, transparency, economic reform, better, better taxation. Policy. I mean, there's like a, a, a whole other conversation that needs to happen with just get every organizational leader in one room and be like, guys, you know why people are burning out? Look to your left, look to your right, hold up a mirror, <laughs> look at yourself. Like this is why it's happening, right? Yeah. But but the, the question of band-aids is very important, right? Because I also have friends, uh, in addition to the two of you now, who work in the film industry, who've told me these things as well. I have a friend uh, who's also my stylist. Shout out to Leah. Hopefully Leah's going to listen to this. I will share this with her. She she worked on The Boys, and uh, she was describing her schedule of working on The Boys. It was in a remote part of Ontario, long days, started early, finished late, very intense over the course of three months. And I was like, wow, that is a recipe for burnout. If you're not thinking about Again, those boundaries and, and how to optimize productivity and, and self-care over there. So there's two things I want to say. What are the band-aids? Excellent question. I think it was Sheryl Sandberg who gave me a puzzle that I've been trying to work out and I haven't quite figured it out, which is, you know, speak, speaks to the, the efficacy of this model. She says, uh, friends, family, fitness, work, and sleep. Five things, right? Friends, family, fitness, work, and sleep. You can only have three at any given time. And I was just like, no, man, I can have all five if I want to. And then I've reconceptualized that with the help of um, Sundar Pichai of uh, Alphabet, who said, just think of those five elements or four of them as glass balls that you're juggling. And one of them is a rubber ball, which is the one that you can afford to drop every now and then while you juggle the other four. And I think, you know, that's sort of what I'm arriving at. How can we just get into the habit of investing in each of those in a way that's necessary to support long-term well-being. But in those events where you have a very compressed amount of time, a finite amount of time in which you're expected to work intensely, put in those 17-hour workdays, then I think you also have to be intentional about perhaps sacrificing two of those things. So work is non-negotiable. Sleep, I would argue, is uh, very important to replenishing your energy. And then the other one depends on your personality, depends on where you gain energy from. I would pick fitness personally, but then you know, I'm also somebody who's, who has very understanding and forgiving family and friends who are okay when I take long stretches of time away from them and don't check in for months on end. And that's not the case for everybody over here. 
So there's that. One last thing I'll add over there, guilt-free energy replenishment. And I can't stress this enough. I would consider myself just like the two of you to be a very conscientious person, very self-aware, emotionally intelligent, as much as I can be empathetic and whatnot. Unfortunately, that also comes with a, an industriousness that seeps into leisure. We feel guilty about taking time away and Ugh. doing things like taking a bath and what? you know sitting down, not not watching anything or Are reading you in anything my brain? while we're having lunch. <laughs> hey, I mean, I'm I'm, so. I'm I'm actively struggling with this right yeah. now. Yeah. I don't think I'm. I feel I'm, you recovering as much as I need to. So I would tell everybody who's listening to this, who needs the permission, think about self-care as part of your job. It's not a nice to have. It's not an augment. It is actually essential. So if you have to, in the middle of the day, if you can play an hour of video games, do it and don't explain it to anyone. Don't justify it. Just put a hold in your calendar that says meeting. Don't specify what that meeting is. It's a meeting with you, your soul yeah. <laughs> and play video games for an hour. Just do it. You know, sorry. i no, I, went, I, think I, went, I went on on. <laughs> I think that's so important. I think that guilt thing, like you hit it, you hit it. Cause like you, I've become more aware over the years. Like you say setting boundaries. And so like now I know when I get an email from whatever director, cause everybody's got a different communication style at two in the morning. Not that I'm looking at my email at two in the morning anymore, but at one point in my career I did. And I had yeah. felt like I needed to respond. And there's times I got out of bed and went to, the, luckily I worked at home, went to my edit suite and did changes. I was like, what yep. am I doing? So what it took, am I doing? Yeah. it took me time. It took me also expertise in my field. Um, knowing that and, and, uh, confidence in my skill level to know, I know what I'm doing as an editor. I'm good now. I, and so uh, now I can set these boundaries. But mm -hmm. when I was younger, I didn't feel like I had the permission to say no or to say, well, this is my, this is when I work. This is how my schedule is. And I think. I wished that I had somebody tell me when I was young and up and coming that what you just said, taking care of yourself is part of your job too. Mm -hmm. Right. That took me all the way back to the very first time that I burned out, which, uh, you know, was at in the music industry. I was an intern working at Sony music entertainment and, um, you know, I'm sure many of the creatives and those of you who are working in, you know, even in the music industry and, and, and I'm sure Heather, you're quite familiar with this by proximity to your husband's work. Mm -hmm. You work during the day and at night you go to shows. Mm -hmm. And there was one stretch where I, for 72 hours, I might've gotten like a combined three hours of sleep because I was studying during the day, doing my internship midday into the evening, then doing shows, doing teardowns, and then also living two hours away from downtown Toronto. So the commute, I was catching little tidbits of naps here and there. There was a lot of Red Bull, a lot of coffee, and you know, a lot of just like praying that I can stay up for one hour longer, one hour longer. At the end of that 72-hour cycle, I showed up to work first person in the morning because I had to be there, impress my boss, sat down in front of the computer, and I started to like, my, my vision became very cloudy and uh, it started to become orange and red. I remember seeing like clouds and I was like, what is going on over here? The fatigue, the blood pressure increasing. I stumbled, went all the way into the, the bathroom, locked the door behind me. I went to the handicapped bathroom because that was a private bathroom. And I remember looking in the mirror, being like, I'm burning up this, this, what, what's going on? I took off my shirt and I blacked out and I woke up 14, 12 to 14 hours later. Oh my God. And I was like, what the hell happened to me? And my phone had blown up. People were texting, calling. And my first thought was, holy shit. I hope my boss mm. like didn't email me or call me. And thankfully, <sighs> like I got nothing from my boss, which was great. And I'm like, he can never know about this because if he finds out that I can't hack it in the industry, he's going to let me go. That was 2007. 
In 2014, when I burned out working at an educational institution, I didn't have the, the luxury of this conversation, the way, you know, Sarah, you were describing, you wish you had somebody. I wish I too had somebody at that time in my life. Tell me that the reason why you burned out has very little to do with how optimized you are. Because I would consider myself to be one of the most productive people that I know who's also very intentional about self-care. But unfortunately, at the time, I didn't know that I was in a, uh, and I'm going to say it, maybe this is the first time I'm saying it. And, and for those of you who worked with me at that time, this might be a surprise to hear it, but I'm just going to go for it. It was a toxic workplace by every measure. And uh, I'm happy to qualify that on another podcast or another opportunity. I think I will write about it in my next book, but I internalized why I burned out and I had to go on an apology to her and tell people, I'm so sorry. I let you down. I dropped the ball over here. And I'm like, what? Like this is uh, adding insult to injury. But I think in 2022, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, to share with people that it's actually easier than ever in most cases to explain that you're going through burnout. And I think it's as simple as this. You go to your manager and you say, I think I'm burning out and I need your help. Manage up, make it their responsibility because it is their responsibility. 70% of, a of the variance in whether or not an employee is engaged, according to Gallup, I think they studied like 200 or something um, different working relationships across the world, has to do with your leader. Like it ultimately comes back to them, make it their responsibility to help mitigate those upstream factors that are causing burnout. And what's amazing now is that we understand that burnout exists on a continuum and it has multiple dimensions, physical, mental, and emotional. If you don't feel comfortable or if your workplace hasn't um, caught up to uh, the sophistication necessary to talk about taking mental health days, then you can pass off any of the physical symptoms. You can say that I'm experiencing fatigue and tiredness, headaches or aches in the body, lowered immunity, um, an inability to sleep, changes in appetite. These are things that you can get doctor's notes for, and they're very easily understandable by your managers. And you can use that as an opportunity to, to take back your time, take back your energy and take back your attention. I, I really, um, you know, we had, we sent a question to you that was about like, how do managers of people recognize and prevent burnout? But I also think, how do we as like seeing our friends and our family, our colleagues, like how do we recognize that and how do we help them? That's a great question. And, uh, you know, the same things that you would look for in yourself, those 12 stages of burnout, looking at those mental, physical, emotional um, symptoms, that's very important. I would say specifically focus on three things, the three dimensions of burnout, according to Dr. Christina Maslach's research inefficacy, exhaustion, and cynicism. Hmm. It's important that you don't dismiss any of these individual symptoms as, you know, yeah, you're just tired or you're having a headache. Like if the headache is also happening in conjunction with they're not effective at work and they're also complaining excessively in the Slack channel, like there's a good chance that this is a clustering of symptoms that is something else, right? It, and, and it goes both ways. I'm starting to think about this more and more. Burnout is to stress what a runny nose is to a cold. It's a symptom. But sometimes it can be the other way around. And that's why I think it's really worthwhile to study burnout because it's such a powerful keyhole by which to, to examine what's wrong about modern workplaces. So to, to, to answer your question succinctly, pay attention to all of the different ways in which burnout presents. The 12 stages of burnout model is really important. Looking at the upstream factors is really important, but also just pay attention to the grouping of the symptoms that form a syndrome. That's fantastic advice. Thank you. And actually, um, Heather, you uh, uh, had a really interesting ending to that story during the time you were burning out in New York. You had a friend that you said um, 
reached out to you and offered you a lifeline. And I think the phrase that you used is call up. Mm -hmm. Just ask for help. I mean, just put the call out to your network. Talk to your friends, talk to your family. There's a good chance if you're listening to this podcast that, you know, the three of us are resources to you as well. Like talk to us, reach out to us, DM me, email me, whatever the case may be. And we're happy to you know, depending on on what you're looking for, introduce you to other people in our networks, provide you with resources and support. Um, people want to help. We're in this together. And I say that with such confidence now because there was a report that came out at the start of the pandemic that came and went. And I'm I'm trying my best to bring it up as much as I can because I think it worth it, it warrants further examination. Microsoft did a study of how organizations, people are perceiving their time during the pandemic. And a very clear trend emerged, a very disturbing trend. Leaders and owners, they're thriving. They're doing well. Oh yeah. But everybody else in the organization, the 99%, those who aren't in control of the means of production, those are the ones who are tired, cynical, and exhausted, cynical, and ineffective. Those are the people who are burning out. So I sometimes think about all of the the false dichotomies that exist in society, left, right, liberal, conservative, you know, we're we're looking we're looking laterally, but I think we need to start looking vertically. That's where the imbalance occurs, top down. Yeah. And I think there is an old like I I notice it with um there are people who have a very specific understanding of like this is how work happens. Like I need to have people in the office. I need to do this thing. I need to work in this fashion. And you can see like, I'm hoping a new generation of people coming up that are like, no, this doesn't have to be the way. This is just the way that you are used to and are comfortable with. But let's stretch how comfortable we are and look at like, what are the other opportunities? And like, for me, I'm I'm really like right now, um, a lot of writers rooms are on Zoom, for instance, which there's some part of me loves it. Um, because it allows me to to not have to travel somewhere and like factor in time for things and like lots of there's lots of reasons but I it, it creates access for people you know people with disabilities who may not be able totally. to like come into a room like it creates access for people from different parts of the world sure. to be part parents. of something parents yeah. is a big one like right. there's all these layers of people who can be involved um, where they couldn't be and I understand the value of being in person too. But I'm like, how can we now look at this and say there there is some success here? Can we create more hybrid situations? Can we Absolutely. create more flexibility? Can we create more understanding and also like, you know, give everyone space to have that space to take to create as part of their job, as you said, taking care of themselves. Because oh, wow. if you put that on your like job description, like as also taking care of yourself is one of them. Then you're like, okay, great. Then I need this time in here because like all those companies going, you get unlimited PTO. Oh. Do you know who wants to take that? No one, because they don't no want to be one. seen like the person taking too much time. Oh my goodness. It's not progressive yet. It's like no. the, the, the icing is progressive and the inside is like an old <laughs> yeah. piece of wood yeah. from yeah. the 1950s. <laughs> like that's what we got. Heather, you got right. Like you're speaking to my soul, man. Like there's, you don't know how many times I'm in meetings or on stage at a conference. And I want to say these exact words. I'm like, do you want people back in the office so that you as the prison master can see your prisoners? Yeah. This is what it feels like at times. Because the worst take I've seen during the pandemic was Bloomberg Business Week made, made a post about how um, one of the biggest drivers for return to the office is going to be FOMO. <laughs> I know. And you know I saw who that. they were quoting. You saw that one. They oh. were quoting the head of one of the largest corporate office 
uh, leasing companies in the world. I'm like, of course, man, this guy has a vested interest. Sunk cost fallacy. We have these like buildings where we want people to come back into so that people can pay their leases and the landlords, the owners, the people who are benefiting from the production of labor, the production and, and labor can just sit back and, and continue to disproportionately increase their, their, their wealth. So I think we the problem is so deep and I wonder how far in time this has been traveling. And uh, I, I'm doing this this fellowship right now at Trent University, which is a really fascinating opportunity because of how much indigenous pedagogy is weaved into their in, into their you know their their business studies. And somebody said something to me that I haven't stopped thinking about. They said maybe this this greed that has pervaded society is as old as the founding of the country itself. Yes. 100%. I've been reading that too. Fur trade Mm -hmm. followed by slavery, indentured labor, um, the the, the prison industrial complex. Maybe this is like hard-coded into organizations and the prevailing ethos of business and work. And that's the frustrating part too, because I think Malcolm X said it. He said, um, if you're not careful, they will teach you to hate the oppressed and love the oppressors. And I think that that's what I'm starting to see, especially with a lot of the dialogue about returning to the office and people being too lazy because they want to work from home. And I'm like, you guys are missing the point. Stop looking left. Stop looking right. Start looking up. Mm -hmm. And you might start getting the answers. We go to therapy because therapy is important for our brains. Myself included. Very important. Very important. And today my therapist says something that I'm like, wrote down. She always says things. I'm like, I need to write that down. Just give me a second. And she's like, I don't remember what I said, but okay. But she said, be radical in how you exist in the world. And I was like. Beautiful. And I'm like, yes, because like so many times we are in all these things that we're talking about. And and also a lot of things that Sarah and I will talk about over the, the life of our podcast about how we try to fit ourselves into a mold of what we expect others to, to it, what others expect of us. And I kept saying, I, I've had a, someone say to me once, like, Heather, once you find simplicity, you will never be stopped. You'll be on fire. But the way that my brain thinks is it thinks like a giant mind map. And she said to me, but why do you have to think simply? Be radical. Mm. Mm. Be radical mm. because that is mm. who you that are. Who you are, and that's the that's what you bring to the world. You don't bring that that one thing that someone wanted you to be. You will never be that because that is not who you are. So be radical in how you think. Yeah, and and by 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 shutting yourself off from from that life force that animates you, mm-hmm. you're not just doing yourself a disservice, but people like myself, Sarah, and all the listeners who need that, who need you, Heather, to be radical so that you give us permission, you inspire us, you you allow us to move through the world differently. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. And I think for far too long, employees around the world, myself included, have been editing ourselves to fit in. But if you mm-hmm. edit yourself enough, Sarah, you know, if you edit, oh, if yeah. you edit enough, you disappear. You're, you're gone. You're, <laughs> you're on gone, the cutting right? room floor. <laughs> you can keep on cutting away and eventually there's no, there's, there's no film left, left, right? Yeah. And yeah, I think that left. that is true for, that is true for individuals. I have tried to fit in. And I think a lot of that was informed by my intersectionality growing up, you know, as a, the son of, of, of uh, South Asian immigrants to this country, not ever feeling like I belonged. So I would change aspects of my personality to fit in. And that, that became reinforced when I was in the Canadian Armed Forces, talk about a work environment that necessitates that you fit in. Like they, they go to the nth degree, they give you the same haircut, the same clothes, so on and so forth. But then as I became more creative in my work, I found that the opposite was required, that I had to become more radical in my ways of thinking and being. And 
you know, maybe it seemed radical to everybody else, but to me, it just seemed like authentic expression. What are some resources that you could recommend for our listeners to engage with in terms of like preventing and dealing with burnout? What should we be looking for? That's great. Uh, and thank, thank you for, for the opportunity to plug the book. It's uh, The Burnout Gamble is a book I wrote in 2017. And, you know, like I said, I have mixed feelings about it because my research now and the book I hope to produce, and I don't even know if it needs to be a book. I need to find another way to communicate the ideas in there because reading a book is such a commitment. It's such an investment. And the, and the last thing you want to do when you're burning out is reading a book, read a book. So I need to find ways to do what you're doing. Maybe start like a, a burnout yes. focused podcast. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. But so the burnout gamble is still really important to read because it really focuses on productivity and self-care and what the individual can do. Another book that I would recommend that's very similar is Calm Within the Storm by Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe. And then by one of my mentors called From Burnout to Breakthrough by Eileen McDar. And then also on the burnoutgamble.com, the, the, the web companion to the book, I list a couple of resources over there. I need to update it, but Headspace, very important, Calm, Ink Blot Therapy, BetterHelp, Option B, Via Character Assessment. These are all things that support your individual well-being. Those would be my burnout resources for now. I wish there was something more, something more comprehensive. And uh, hopefully this will inspire people to, to perhaps build their own solution or share them with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah. What we often like dissect next um, on the podcast is to talk a little bit about film and television. I know you love film sure. and television because I know love. I heard I was listening to one of your TED Talks. and You're like, yeah, for like the last two weeks when I said peace to my boss, I was watching movies. <laughs> so I was like, I know you watch stuff. Um, that's so all so, I do for fun. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> no, well, that's, that's also that's all, we, all do we do for fun <laughs> and work. So is there any film or television that uh, deals burnout in an accurate way? But then also, what would you like to see represented more? Wow. Okay. I, I had some time to think about this. So, so my, 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 my expression of wow is like how much we've covered in such a short period of time. And I didn't think we would get to this question. So I'm so glad that you asked this question. This is unexplored territory for me. I, I do a lot of podcasts about burnout and some of the answers are very similar. Not in this one, for sure. I've given like you, I've only given new answers in this one. Oh, yeah, such yes. excellent questions. <laughs> but this one in particular, I've been so excited about because I think about this all the time, but nobody ever wants to seek these insights from me. So thank you. <laughs> I, feel, I feel so validated. The best depiction of burnout that I've seen committed to film is uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? <gasps> oh, yes. With, um, uh, oh, my goodness. My 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 WCW, Kate Blanchett. Yeah. Yep. Biggest crush on her. So Where'd You Go, Bernadette is uh, one of the best depictions of burnout that I've seen on film. Uh, another one is The Departed, Leonardo mm, DiCaprio's yes, character specifically. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's experiencing chronic stress that has been unsuccessfully managed. Like you see him actually go through the 12 stages of burnout and he goes to stage 13, spoiler alert, you know, if there is a <laughs> stage 13. And then on television, I was very impressed with what Kate Winslet did with Mayor of Easttown. Mayor of Easttown, the show starts off with her burned out. And I'm like, whoa, okay, this is this is very interesting. She's lying in bed all the time, barely getting up, just brain fog. Like she is exhausted, cynical, and ineffective when the show yeah, starts. Yeah. And that carries on throughout the show. Um, to see her like emerge from the burnout is really cool. A great one, especially the, the, like the first three, if you're listening to this right now and, and you have kids, I wouldn't recommend showing any of those to your kids. Maybe <laughs> no. where'd you go burn that is good. But uh, Inside Out, what a great depiction yes. of the inner workings that contribute to burnout. I've also been binging mm. The Sopranos over and over and over again. <laughs> There's so many characters on that show who are so burned out. <laughs> Tony yeah. Soprano being chief among them. 
And then in terms of books, Tokyo Vice is really interesting. I believe they're turning that into a TV show. And I had the chance to collaborate with a company out in Paris called Welcome to the Jungle. And they did a documentary on burnout that I thought was really, really good, where they spoke to people like you and I who are burned out and uh, you know they, they rehearsed their experiences. So those are a couple of films, television shows, and books that deal with burnout in an accurate way. But as far as what I'd like to see represented more... I think we're doing a really good job of showcasing what burnout looks like, but I would like to know the now what, the, yes. the what do we yes. do? Where do we go from here? Let's talk about solutions. Yeah. And we, we see glimpses of that every now and then, you know, we saw glimpses of it in the big short, for instance, we saw glimpses of it, you know, in some of Michael Moore's documentaries, we saw glimpses of it in um, margin, margin call, another movie on Netflix that sort of came and, and went but we rarely engage with the system level conversation. And I'd love to see more of that represented mm-hmm. on screen. I was thinking like uh, Scrubs, this is old school. Dr. Cox is a really great example of someone who is like really like he's always grumpy. He's always like doesn't want to be there. It, he seems to not care when he does, but he's so beaten down. And then I think in season five, when he loses three patients at once, I think the episode is called My Lunch. He actually finally, like, you could see him just like snap and is like, I have to, I can't be here anymore. And then a lot of times I think we see that stuff lead to addiction and lead to use of like alcohol and drugs and, or things like, I think someone said like nurse Jackie or things where people are burnt out and using sometimes stimulants to try to help them cope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think we're seeing that. And that was my example or my thought was Wolf on Wall Street, which like, It shows the the work dynamic that you get get you need more you need more you need more and then it ultimately ended with addiction and yeah losing your money and so family everything everything yeah. right so like it is like well life or death like I feel like it, yeah. it burnout needs to be taken seriously to kind of follow on what you said before Hamza is like but I want to see people like you said like it took me three to five months to like or three to five years not months years you said. Three years, to five yeah. years to deal with this. I mean, that's a long time on a film. Long but, time, yeah. um, but I think like I saw someone posted on Twitter like we have to like start talking about things like you know especially like with women we are not superhuman. Mm-hmm. We we mm-hmm. can't just like bounce back the next day from something that's bad and hard. Like when you know, and I think that um, they've said there's been a lot of research which I have zero facts about at this moment in time because it's coming off the top of my head about women taking greater burdens, p- women lose leaving their jobs because of the pandemic, taking the they take the burden of the home as well as everything else during this time. We are not superhuman. We will burn out, but also we can't bounce back the next day. And I'm not right. saying it's just women, it's men and women, but sure. I want to see like, not the immediate, like, look at how strong I am and I can carry on, which I think is part of burnout, but rather, like you said, like, what is the next stage and like, how do we get better and how are we seeing characters, especially in television, we can see them change. So like, why can't we see that growth of like, seeing the burnout, but then also seeing like, what are the impacts of how we can fix it on the other side without instant therapy? That. Yeah. Oh, that beautiful. I, I, I hope that we see that. And maybe this conversation will spark somebody to write a character differently or to add an, a, another episode that rounds out a character arc. Like that's so cool. I've never thought about it in that way, but glaringly absent from, from literature and film and television. And Heather, you mentioning like um, women and family and children, like I have a young daughter and I think it would be amazing in television to show, like I had a conversation with my daughter the other day. I said, I booked myself for three nights to go to like a little lake 
hotel just to like have three days because I, I haven't been able to go on vacation or do before I used to go on work trips. Well, it was work, but it was also time for me to like reset. And I said, I'm going to go. And it, she's like, well, why can't I come? I'm like, you know, everybody needs to take time to just re reconnect and reset. We don't see moms doing that on TV. No. And, and we don't talk about it. It's not something that's like in some ways acceptable. Like, well, no, why right. would you leave your kid? Well, yeah, why bad you moms. Your kid? You're, you're a bad, bad mom. Yeah. yeah. It probably doesn't pull well with the audience that they're showing showing it to. But I'm like, yeah, think think bigger over here. Because I, I think that where'd you go, Bernadette? Great, great movie. But the solution at the end, spoiler alert, is she just goes to the Antarctic, Antarctica. And she's just taking this trip, just kayaking, seeing the whales. And I'm like, oh, fantastic. And her family doesn't understand why she's doing this, right? Uh, her husband is like, well, like wh- where'd you? you go, Bernadette? Is is, is <laughs> yeah. the title, and she's yeah. like, I need to recover from burnout over there. Yeah, but not everybody can do that. I mean, very yeah. few people can actually just quit the system, leave their families, and prioritize their well-being the way that was depicted by Richard Linklater in that movie. So I would like to see like great intentions, fantastic. We've opened up the possibility for this to do commercially and uh, critically well. Let's see this represented more. Let's do more TV shows, more books like this, because we, we clearly see with this example, it can be done at a high level. Why not? And also seeing people who are not of means, like Sarah and I grew up, we did, we, we're we not of means. Yeah, we, did not, yeah. we could not just go away. No. But like, how do we also see that, like how burnout manifests in that space and how do you deal with it? Because I think we talk a lot about choice and there's a lot of times that, that choice is eliminated because if you not eliminated, but there is sometimes it's difficulty because that job means you eat and you pay your rent. Mm -hmm. So I think seeing more of that and like how people can like find that space to, to be, to still be healthy with themselves when it seems barely impossible. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, Heather, that's uh, you, you, you've zeroed in on it. Like I'm telling you, I I read a report earlier this week that said that majority of young Canadians no longer believe that working hard will allow them to achieve the level of success that they hope for. And I'm like, wow, this is never like for all intents and purposes, we knew it was dead. We knew it was probably a lie, but the American dream is not, doesn't exist with this new generation. And so the answer, sorry, Gary V, the answer isn't more work because you do more work and you will burn out and then you will enter into this vicious cycle that keeps you and the generations that follow you perpetually underneath this power structure. So I think what's happening is really cool. Like the fact that we're even having this conversation is so fulfilling. It's it's filling me with such optimism, even though like we've traversed a lot of heavy, dark content. (laughs) But, you know, I think for the first time, we're now starting to see Wow. I mean, okay. So real quick, when I, when I was writing the leadership reinvented, I had to try to understand like, what is a dark triad leader? What do they look like? And uh, there were three that I I zoned in on Adam Newman of WeWork, Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos and um, Travis Kalanick of Uber. And there were books written about them. There were podcasts about them. And I'm like, wow, this is perfect. Let me write about them, incorporate them. And now here we are at the time of this recording, 2022, and major motion pictures are being made about all three. And I'm giddy with excitement being like, wow, we have an opportunity here for the first time to show villains that look like people that were around every single day. They're not Ursula with like tentacles. They're not Jafar (laughs) turning into a cobra. They're not, you know... Uh, these these warped ideas that have the right archetype for a villain and an oppressor, but now they're like, hey, this is like Steve that I work with yeah. behaves very mm-hmm. similar to Travis Kalanick, or you know, uh, Laura that I work with also creates this reality force field the way that Elizabeth Holmes does. So I'm hoping that what this does for 
the population at large is give them insight into what a everyday villain could look mm -hmm. like. And maybe yes. that can create the necessary preconditions to accelerate this path that we're on. I believe that the end goal of this conversation and all of the movements that are you know, coalescing together is macroeconomic reform. 100%. Yep. Woo. Yes. Yep. I love it. Well, um, we have, thank you for giving us so much of your time yes, today. Thank you. Oh my um, God. Where did the we, time go? We really, we really could have gone for much longer. Much, much longer. All of this is so important. So I think um, we just really wanted to say thank you for coming on and like sharing, not like being really honest and sharing your own personal experiences, which I think is what makes, I think your, your book, you know, first when you first read it and you were hearing, and I'm just like, I so understand this. And it brings you into a headspace of like, this person has walked the road that I'm walking or that I have walked before. Yeah. Mm. And and so thank you for sharing that with us in that capacity here. And, and we really appreciate thank everything you. you've given us. Yes. And I look I look forward to all of your future research and the more information that you're going to, like, I feel like you're going to change, you're going to be one of the people that changes the way our society works. And I'm excited to see where it goes. That, that means the world to me. Th thank you both so much for, for the time, for, for the trust, um, you know, for, for asking the listeners what, what, what they want answered. I mean, this is such a, such a rewarding experience. You have, um, you've gifted me with, with, with the ability to just do what I do and, and reconnect with the why of what I do. So thank you. And I feel like in the time that we've recorded this, I've emptied my brain. <laughs> And there's still more. There's still more. So episode two, episode three, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, we'll come back for sure. So thank you. Thank you so thank you. much. Thank you both. Thank you. Really, really appreciate this. Hamza, thank you so much for all of this amazing information, the research you've done, the research you're doing currently. I can't wait to hear and learn more from you. Um, our our conversation was just enlightening yeah and i i felt <laughs> i felt like the podcast we could have gone for five hours there's a lot that i realized that i have experienced in that realm that i never really thought that it was really related to burnout but it was yeah what's your one awesome thing so um i was just looking so i think it came through to me last night or this morning the bfi so the british film institute has introduced well-being experts for all sets of all projects that they do. No. Yes. for Because there's been cases that have come out around bullying. They are, um, and I think that stress, it's like stress, bullying, harassment, um, all of these things. And they basically have been starting to implement it in 2021. They're now officially implementing it and training more people into 2022. So I really hope that they're bringing in I really hope they bring in trained specialists for mm -hmm. this and then training them specifically to understand more about, um, to understand more about film and television. But, um, it's, I think it's a step forward and I hope it's not a, just a, um, like just a decoration as I'd say, but actual real change. So the fact that I saw that the BFI is doing this and they're continuing this process into 2022, I just am really excited, um, that this could be like, to me, this is one awesome thing that will hopefully lead to many more awesome things. Oh, that's so great. Well, mine is not. Well, maybe my one awesome thing is a good form of taking care of yourself 
or giving you more work. I can't, I can't, I don't know yet. We got a new puppy. Her name is Ziggy Stardust. She is what we think is a mini Australian Shepherd, but she might just be a full Australian Shepherd. She's adorable. We also have two other dogs. So our house is very full of furry animals. And um, unfortunately, Heather cannot visit our house anymore. She's I'm very, very allergic. very allergic. And I'm sorry, but I love you. And I'm glad that we can connect through Zoom. But I will say, I will say this, like, you know, since this is an episode about burnout and stress, that I think we know animals are great stress relievers. And so having, um, you get three times the stress relief, right? Well, <laughs> and sometimes extra stress, but, but all in all, like there is something special. So a couple years ago, I got my, my dog, Penny. I've never, we've never, like, we didn't have, obviously didn't have animals growing up because Heather was allergic, but Sorry. I've never, it's okay. I didn't <laughs> understand dog people. And then I met my husband and he had a dog. And so I kind of started to get it. And then I met my dog, Penny. And like, as cheesy as it is, like we imprinted on each other. And like, there's something special about having a connection with an animal, like a pup. And she does, she makes me feel more calm. And there's just something special about that, that extra love. Anyway, we were joking that we're, we only have one child, but we, we will have many, 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 many dogs. <laughs> um, I have uh, 20 plants, so... They don't love you as much, but I do get super excited when they grow a new um, stem. So that's what I have. I'm sure they love you too. Well, that's it. That's it. I think we learned a lot. These podcast episodes are like, my brain is, my brain is getting bigger. I really am reevaluating my life, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? As as I was reading hum, um, Hamza's book, I was like, why did we decide to start this podcast? But I wouldn't have read his book and started learning more about burnout and the signs of burnout if we weren't investigating our brains and doing yeah. this. So this is exactly where we need to be right now. And I hope you yes. all listen and enjoy it and take it all in. Agreed. Well, and on that note, let's uh, say goodbye. Bye. Bye. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor. Theme music created by our little brother, Depish. Our lovely logo and design was created by Perpetual Notion. This episode was mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. If you want to follow us on social media, check us out at BRAAAINS podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. And be sure to check out our website at BRAAAINSpodcast.com. There you can find more resources, check out our Patreon, and merch shop. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends to tune in. Till next time, I'm your host, Sarah Taylor. And I'm your other host, Heather Taylor. Goodbye! Bye!